we read this, this first segment of these first 13 verses to start with tonight. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, and now quoting from the Old Testament, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This, of course, was a prophecy concerning John the Baptist from the Old Testament. And so we pick it up in verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and they're all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John with clothes, with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness, that is Jesus, for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So as we see, this is a very abbreviated version of the introduction of the ministry of Jesus amongst the nation of Israel. Unlike Matthew and Luke, where we get details about the childhood or the early years, early events surrounding Jesus, this one starts with, here he is. This is what was going on in Judea with the greatest of all prophets, John the Baptist. This was his calling card, his credentials prophesied from the Old Testament. There would be this guy the greatest of prophets, and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. It was spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures, and that's who he is, and that's what he did. This is what he looked like. This is what his message. This is how the people came to him. They responded to him, and his message was one of repentance, to turn from sin, personal sin, and with a, a sense of expectation for the one who's going to come and give clarity beyond sin. They needed to respond to Jesus from that repentance. Even later on in the book of Acts, we know when Paul, the apostle, went to Ephesus, he found about 12 men who were following the baptism of John the Baptist. They had that part of it, like, hey, we've, we've got the message up to John the Baptist. And Paul's like, well, what were you baptized into? And they're like, well, John the Baptist. He's like, and beginning there, he gave them a fuller knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they, you know, received Christ and they were, they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues as a sign in that timeline, and they got the complete package. So that's a really good example of that. John was preparing the people with expectation for Christ to come. And he says in the other Gospels that the Father told him he would recognize the one, the Messiah, when he came, and he would confirm him. And the other Gospels tell us that when John saw Jesus, he, the Father, spoke to John and said, this is my son, this is the one. Now, before he baptized Jesus, he testified, or in the same timeline, he testified that Jesus was the Son of God. He made very clear, John the Baptist did, that Jesus was deity. That is, he's God. He's not just a man. He's God. Now, John's gospel tells us that Jesus is before all things, and all things are held together by him, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And then in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word there is logos, which is be able to understand thought, intelligent thought. God's heavenly language is spoken to us through Jesus Christ. We are told in the Gospel of John that, that the law, the Ten Commandments and all that from the Old Testament came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and that no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has declared him. So Jesus comes to earth and has lived a perfect sinless life up to this point and lived a perfect sinless life until he died on the cross. And as he's unveiled to the people, John the Baptist says, this is God, this is the Son of God. And then he said, this is the Lamb of God, which is kind of paradoxical. In other words, it seems to be two conflicting thoughts because you think the Son of God is going to establish the reign of David as promised from the Old Testament. He's going to be the great king in Jerusalem. But the Lamb of God sounds like the Passover Lamb who is sacrificed in the place of the people in the Old Testament. So even in John's spoken ministry beyond baptizing the people with their confession of sin and their forgiveness of sin and their expectation of a Savior and the Messiah, he said, this is the Son of God and this is the Lamb of God, which of course is the great message of the, go- of the Gospels in the Bible that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins the first time as the Lamb of God, and he comes to rule and reign the second time as the Son of God. And he's both in both things. And that's why in heaven they say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. There in Revelation chapter 5, he's the Lamb. So Jesus has been off the grid or under the radar his, his entire lifetime, essentially, from the time he was 12 and the whole event that happened in the temple recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. And there he is, the carpenter, in an insignificant town in what would be an insignificant job. But he comes down, and his time has come. We read in Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, to come into the world as the Savior. Jesus is always right on time. We know that when he entered the city of Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, it was exactly to the day, 490 years, as prophesied from the book of Daniel. That's why he said, this you only knew, Israel, this your day. So everything's right on time with the Lord. And Jesus comes down. Now, Jesus was a common name, right? It's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It means, you know, Savior. And just like Judas was a very common name at that time. And we see throughout the testimony of the New Testament that it's Jesus of Nazareth, to a, that distinction. So who he is is made very clear for us in these first 13 verses, that he's John is the one that was prophesied of who would prepare the way of the Lord. And then John's testimony is that one comes mightier than him whose sandal strap is not worthy to unloosen. And then Jesus is that one. And John baptized people with water. But Jesus, when we'd give our life to Christ, especially in the church age from the day of Pentecost on, we'd be born again and filled with the Spirit. We'd pass from death to life. So we're born once through our mothers, but we're going to be in the flesh. But then we're going to be born again through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, and that power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that the Holy Spirit's everywhere, that God is triune in his nature. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there, in, even in the second verse of the, the Old Testament, in Genesis, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, over the waters. And in the Old Testament, people like David, when he wrote the Psalms and various other things that he might have said, it would be attributed to the Holy Spirit. We're told in the New Testament that when prophets spoke in the Old Testament, 
holy men of God spoke as they were prompted by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy ever came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We know like in Gideon in the book of Judges and even Samson that the Spirit came upon them. So the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of believers and people of faith in the Old Testament before Christ came as they believed in the promises that were pointing forward to when Christ would come. The Holy Spirit came and went on people's lives, but he didn't indwell everybody. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, and in the church age that we're now in, we know that when we give our life to Christ, we are born again in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit literally comes in us, and he indwells us. And he confirms to us that we've given our life to God and that we are his children. We get that confirmation by the Holy Spirit. That's why we're told that we're the temple of God. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit dwelt in the holiest of holies where God's Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the temple. But we're told in the New Testament that through faith in Jesus Christ being born of the Spirit, that we are the temple of God and that God indwells us. And that's why we can be, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We can be grieved when we see certain things on the news that make us sad or they're contrary to the character of God and the things of God. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. And we're told that we are born of the Spirit. We're told to be Spirit-filled. We are told that we have the mind of the Spirit. We're told that we have the gifts of the Spirit, supernatural gifts that God gives us by His Spirit. We're told that we're given the baptism of the Spirit, which actually implies even more than just being born of the Spirit, to be His witnesses to live a victorious life. So the Holy Spirit's crucial in the life of a believer. That goes without saying. And it's in the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ and the everlasting covenant, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a game changer because there were previous covenants in the Old, Co- in the Old Testament from Adam to Noah to Abraham and you know, there's a couple other covenants in there. And, and then, But the new covenant is the everlasting covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. So when it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, this is the new covenant. And this is the fullness of everything. Everything was pointing forward to Jesus. For Jews, for Romans, for Greeks, and for all humanity to this day, here and now, with Jesus Christ for the nations. So Jesus is the one that gives us the Holy Spirit, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he came there, he was baptized. Now, why was Jesus water baptized? Many of you would know this, but it's important that we address this. Because the baptism was for sin. And Jesus isn't a sinner, but he identifies with sinners. And it's very interesting to me that when you look at his earthly ministry, Jesus' earthly ministry began with him identifying with sinners in water baptism. He began his ministry, the purpose of his coming. It was great that he was a sinless citizen for 30 years in Nazareth. But he began his ministry identifying with sinners. And he ended his ministry on the cross identifying with sinners. He comes into the world, the perfect, sinless Savior, the Holy One of God, the promised Messiah. And he identifies with sinners in the beginning. He walks with sinners and meets sinners where they're at throughout his entire three-year earthly ministry. And the last thing we see is when he says, it is finished on the cross, he commends himself to the Father and taking that death on the cross in our place, he identifies with us. It's just, it is amazing grace. It's incredible to think the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it began... For all the world in this little remote area there in the Middle East by the Jordan River is where it all began. And what really gets my attention before we move on from here, apart from him choosing to identify with us, because he's not repenting of sin, but he's identifying with sinners, 
is the Father speaks. So here we see God in his triune nature in verse 11. The Father speaks and the Spirit descends. It was all physical and, and comprehensible in the realm of time. How often have we ever heard God's voice out loud? But it would appear that it certainly was out loud in this situation. And the, we see the distinction of God being three in one. The Father says, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in the form like a dove, visible, physical, able to be seen by witnesses, and there's Jesus the Son. So here we see God's triune nature. And then, of course, Jesus went into the wilderness with the 40-day spiritual battle with Satan, and Jesus, and Jesus has victory with Satan in the, in the battle of sin where our father Adam failed. Adam failed. We know that Adam uh, failed in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But Jesus is the second Adam, the perfect man, the son of man, and the son of God. And he had victory over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So he, the initial head of the race is Adam. And we're all born in sin because of Adam, because in Adam all sin and all die. But when Jesus Christ comes in the world, he establishes the second race, the new race. He restores the glory that was lost. And for all women and men and young girls and young men who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we pass from death to life. To Christ. And we're born of the Spirit, and we have a new identity in the second Adam because if anyone be in Christ or a new creation, old things have passed away, all things are new. So we've passed from that condemnation to that justification, and He fought that battle for us. And that's why we're told in 1 John later on that our spiritual victory, that we don't love the world, we're in the world, but not of the world, and that because all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those things are contrary to God's character. That's how we're tempted. Those are the three main areas of temptation. Every temptation falls in those three categories. Lusting with our eyes and uh, lusting with our flesh or our pride. Those are three things. And we're all certainly dispositioned to be sinful in those three areas in different times under different circumstances. And we know the devil looks for an opportune time to trip us up in those things. But the real issue is that Jesus has the victory and he won the victory where Adam had failed. And we're told through faith in Jesus Christ that if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And it's important to realize that his victory over Satan in the desert is our victory. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has given the church of Jesus Christ victory over sin. He's given us victory over the devil, and he's given us victory over the grave. So that's the total victory we have in Jesus Christ. So it's more the, the matter of growing and learning and submitting to him and trusting him. But this is all about victory. So in these first 13 verses, it's just so clear, like everything that ever happened led up to this point, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John led the way, and he said, one's coming mightier than after me. Jesus came, he's confirmed by the Father, and he has the victory. So Jesus begins the earthly ministry by identifying with us right where we're at and establishing victory right where our father, the head of the race, had failed, Jesus gets victory. So he's coming from victory for everything he's doing in his earthly ministry in this book. And as we respond to him and as people respond to him through faith in him, we come from victory. I'll be teaching tomorrow, a guest speaking at World Vision for their chapel. And I love to teach that passage from 1 Corinthians 9 about we run to win and we run for an imperishable crown. And what I've shared on that message in other places is that we don't 
hope for victory. Most athletes, like when they're training and competing, they're hoping to win it all. But you see, through faith in Jesus Christ, and you go back to Jesus' victory here in the wilderness, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We don't hope for victory. We come from victory. We come from victory. The cross is about total victory for everything that we need to face in our life. And as we grow and learn from our shortcomings and failures and trials and tribulations and testings, we're moving, we're going from glory to glory, and we're learning more about the victory. But we don't ever wake up and say, like, we have no chance. Like, there'd be some sports teams or some athletes are looking at a challenge and like, I got no chance in this. We don't ever have to come from that because our victory isn't based upon who we are in Adam. Our victory is based upon who we are in Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, that's, we're victorious. It's a victorious life that we have in Christ. We're not born again so we can be defeated in what was. We're born again so we can be victorious in what is through Jesus Christ and the victory he gives us. He routed the devil, and we're identified with his victory as we press into him and trust him. So we read on now, verse 14. Now, after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news, which, of course, is in him. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That, of course, is Peter and Andrew, Simon being Peter. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So as Jesus began his earthly ministry right after the victory in the wilderness, so he identifies with sinners, he goes in the wilderness, has the 40-day victory over the devil, and then he begins the ministry there in the north. Now, Mark's account takes us right into the ministries in full gear, and, but we know that Jesus had already had encounters with these guys, some of these guys. It's recorded for us in the Gospel of John, which precedes these events. But he's coming to these guys, and now it's the real deal. It's not... The prequel. He's calling these guys to full commitment to follow him. These four men are going to be his disciples. They're going to be his apostles. They're going to be of the 12. Four fishermen that were in the fishing business together. And Jesus, when he calls a man and he calls a woman to follow him, he calls for supremacy. Back in the autumn when I was listening to a lot of Billy Graham messages, I still am. I'm hearing them all. There's so many of them on YouTube and they're just wonderful to listen to. But something that Billy Graham said some 30, 40 years ago really resonated with me in one of his messages that there's only two reasons to be alive with God. The first one is to get saved through faith in Jesus Christ, and the second one is to serve him with everything you have until Jesus Christ calls you home. Those are the two purposes of life, to be saved and to fulfill your calling. And Jesus comes to these guys with the calling. Now, if you recall from Luke's account in chapter 5, they caught all those fish, like Jesus taught in Peter's boat, and then he said to Castor, dropped their nets, and like, hey, we didn't catch anything all night. He said, no, oh, well, that's okay, just cast your nets. And Peter goes, all right, you're the captain of the ship. And they drop the nets, and all this fish, it's more they could bring in. And Peter falls on his face, and he goes, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That's important insight to this story, because Peter was very much aware, cognizant of his frailty as a human being. And he understood that he was dealing with the supernatural, that, this, that 
no man can do this, that he's dealing with God, the son of God. And he's a, he's a fisherman. But isn't that beautiful? Like, that's what's so cool about this story is that these are just everyday guys. These are trade workers. These are just everyday men at work and, and, and women, if you will, and humanity. And Jesus says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And I think the key to understanding the things that God wants to do in our life from our youngest years to our oldest years to the end of our years is it really is the simplicity of following Jesus. When we understand and we can demonstrate that serving God is as simple as following Jesus, we simplify what God's doing in our life, in us and through us. You know, most world religions have lots of hoops to jump through to attain to some sort of morality or nirvana or some type of deity that you become a god or you do enough of this every day this way and you do this pilgrimage and that pilgrimage you might get to heaven there's no assurance but because through faith in christ we know we're saved and whom the sun sets free is free indeed we come from a place of strength like i said and it's following jesus like he calls us into a relationship and most of us are very much aware of this and i talk about this on this topic that though we understand that intellectually sometimes we Move from that because it's a relationship and we can make our, our faith in God very robotic and very legal and, and sterile or dry. But it, it's meant to be a vital relationship. Like, it, just, it was awesome to hang out with Jesus. Like, it just, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to walk with Jesus as one of those apostles. It's just been incredible. Or there in the early church when the apostles had all those signs and wonders going, the things that they were doing and just seeing what God was doing, it's just so special and we want to be that version of that in our lifetime and in this place, in this generation, in this location. It's awesome to be a Jesus. It's the best thing ever, like to walk with the Lord. And he says, follow me. And he draws people to himself. And so it's very simple in the presentation of the gospel is that we're presenting Jesus. We're presenting Jesus. It doesn't get complicated. We share Jesus with people. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. God so loved the world, he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave for our hope and justification. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he's over all things. Jesus is coming again in glory to establish the kingdom. And every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things are made by Jesus and for Jesus, and in him all things consist. He, he's the Lord of all. He's the head of all. And that's not that complicated. I mean, the person of Jesus is who we follow. And I'm so grateful that I don't have some sort of like a constitution of what you need to believe to hope to get to heaven. But it's the person of Jesus. Look, you look at the thief on the cross and he said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the simplicity. Like that thief repented on the cross because the gospel tells us the two thieves on the cross with Jesus were mocking him collectively and then the one thief had a change of heart the longer he looked at Jesus sitting next to him and then he began to tell the other thief he didn't do anything wrong we're here because we're criminals and he had a change of heart and he had faith he faith came from him directed toward Jesus and he said remember me Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise it is always about Jesus when Peter was sinking in the Sea of Galilee, it was because he took his eyes off Jesus. When Jesus called these guys, he said, follow me. It's the, it's the simplest theological teaching doctrinal statement possible to follow Jesus. 
what would Jesus do really is a great thing to ask because it's Jesus. So he called them to himself and he said, I will make you become fishers of men. So it's really important, the main thought on this call of these men who changed the world because they did change the world. We're here. You realize we're here tonight as an extension of this calling. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about this. Paul said, when I came to the Corinthians, I was in fear and trembling. But it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. So if we have our eyes on Jesus and we seek him and we depend upon him, he will make us who he wants us to be. He will transform our character. He will uh, clarify our message, simplify our life, and let our light shine before men. And as my son Luke said the other morning when he had been up all night with the baby, he comes out in the morning and goes, hey, Dad, do you realize that there's a difference between before and at? I'm like, okay, elaborate. Luke's the genius, so he thinks like this. He goes, well, Jesus said, let your light shine before men, not at men. He goes, the mistake a lot of people do is they point the light at men. They shine the light at men. Like, he goes, but we're meant to shine the light before men. To show them away, he goes, Dad, it's, it's really simple. It's like, if we just live our life for Christ, our light is shining before men. And that'll draw people to the Savior. Well, we had dinner with someone else the other night, a couple, and they were talking about how many other extended family that mocked them 30 years ago when they came to Christ as they stepped into eternity one by one under various circumstances, how so many of them came to the Lord on the back end because this family's, this couple's light had shined before men. And eventually, as people are stepping into eternity, we still have the light before them. So I will make you fishers of men. It, when I got called into pastoral ministry and Brian Broderson asked me to be a pastor, it was a really simple conversation. He's like, hey, buddy, Joey, buddy. Like, Brian's like, hey, I was thinking, because he kind of has this thing where he'd like just when he's young. He's like, hey, I was thinking, like, you should consider being a pastor. I said no before you put a period on that sentence. Like, no, 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 no. I, my no was fa- faster than his punctuation. And Brian was like, okay, little buddy, well, why don't you just think about it? Because the reason I said no right away is just like, well, what am I going to do? Like all those years in the Catholic Church looking at the priest, it's like, I can't be a priest. It looks like a lot. That's like, I don't know, man. I want a wife too. You know, I want to have a family. So like my no was very quick because it was the whole idea of like, I've got to do this and I got to get really smart. I got to know the Bible backwards in Latin or something, you know, like just... I just had to understand in God's call in my life that it's not what I'm going to do for the Lord. It's what he's going to do through me. And that classic, it's not, it's a Calvary slogan for years with Calvary Chapel. It's not our ability, but our availability. Jesus said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He'll do the work. He does the work. He'll make us fishers of men. We abide in him, and then he just shines through us. And um, years ago, a Spanish surf magazine had a full-page shot of me in, in a barrel when I won the world championship for old, old guys when 30 was old. Uh, but I'm in this big tube, and it's a Spanish magazine. It said, El Pastor Brand in El Tubo. <laughs> so I'm like a surfer of men, you know, like fisher of men, surfer of men. Whatever your interests are, God's going to use those things and mold those things and move you toward those people to be a light to people with those interests that you can... Uh, impact them and let your light shine before them for the Lord. That's what he does. Our light shines before men. So that's how it is. Now, as the earthly ministry of Jesus goes forward, we read on in verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum. They, so now he's got the apostles with him. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. That's like their local church for the Jews. And they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him. Of course, it was a demon, and saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And then the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice. He came out of him. Then they're all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? Like, what new doctrine or teaching is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Well, I would just point out very quickly that this, this first thing that Jesus did in a synagogue here, and it's recorded in the other Gospels, the people were amazed at his authority. They, it says it twice there, and it's confirmed in the Synoptic Gospels, that what really captivated the people was like his authority, like he taught with authority. He cast out the demons with authority. And of course, he's, he's God. He's the son of God. There's nothing, there's no, nothing in this dimension that is not subject to his authority. Jesus showed in his earthly ministry authority over everything, including the physical realm, disease, defilement, death, demonic. He shows his authority over that. But here's the thought I just want to put out there for us before we read on. His authority is our authority. And I think we often underestimate that. Because there in Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go. So if you just kind of use simple math, reason. Okay, Jesus has all authority. He sent out the apostles with his authority, based upon his authority. And he told them to tell us, the next generation, to do the same things they did, which was under his authority and with his power. Therefore, the church of Jesus Christ on the planet today has the same authority and power of the first century church. We are under the authority of the ultimate authority. And in our prayers, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we are seeking to fulfill his will in our life, and we, as best we know how, sincerely are walking in that will, we are walking and functioning in the full authority of Jesus Christ on earth, the kingdom of God on earth working in and through us. In other words, what I'm saying is this authority he demonstrated in this synagogue is our authority when we simply obey him as best we can discern for the simple things of our life. His authority is our authority. It's not like all oh, this authority is here with Jesus and then the church has this much authority. No. His authority is our authority. And when we're in his will, there is no force or power that is greater than the power in us and through us according to his calling on our life and the authority over our life. And we need to understand that. And I think the church would do well to be submitted to his authority that we can function even greater power with his authority for this time. We live and then we're gone. Verse 29. Now, as soon as they'd come out of the synagogue and they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, so there's the four, but Simon's wife's mother, so his mother-in-law, laid sick with fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. 
Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon, that is Peter, and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For, for this purpose, I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So those events happened within 24 hours of, of the mother-in-law being healed, Peter's mother-in-law, and then all the people bringing sick people and just this amazing ministry of what he's doing, casting out demons. It was incredible. And then after that full night of ministry, the next morning, Jesus is up before light, 4.35-ish, whatever. He's up early. He's in a solitary place, and he's praying. And he's communicating with the Father. He would say in the Gospel of John, he always does those things that please the Father. And so Simon comes and says, hey, we need to do this. And Jesus says, no, we need to do that. In other words, there's a good lesson for us here. Notice the sequence. Jesus, solitary place, clear vision of the Father's will. Outside influence saying, oh, this is what we need to do. No, this is what we're called to do and staying on point. In fact, Jesus said, for this purpose, I've come. And I would give us a really key application to kind of pretty much wrap up the night here. I believe that if we are making time for solitary prayer and we're prioritizing prayer on a daily basis with the Lord, essentially in the morning, ideally, we're going to be on point and we're going to be on purpose. And we're going to know what we're called to do. You know, we're not bound to something, but we want to have vision and direction too. Do you ever really think how much time and lives people waste, most people waste? It's really sad to think of people that reject the gospel, and even though they get saved at the end, which is fantastic, how they just, they never got to live that life for the Lord. We're here tonight on Tuesday night, and we're seeking the Lord, and we get to live our life for the Lord. Praise the Lord. Like, it's it. We got this, and then it's gone. And we got tomorrow, and then it's gone. I mean, we had a congregant step into eternity last week in her 40s, in her sleep. I mean, it... it Eternity is right there. It's the core of the great evangelist Jonathan Edwards' message in the colonial era that we're all one step from eternity, right there, just right into eternity, and we are. And we want to make time to seek the Lord and hear clearly and definitively what we want to have a sense of what he's doing in our life. And we want to, whether it just seems very practical or something profound like going to Afghanistan in January, we want to be in tune with the Lord. And we want to be praying about his will in our life. We want to be praying for the people we love in our life. We want to be praying for the people that he's brought into our circle to pray for, to be aware of their needs. We want to be in tune. We want to be in tune with the Lord. And we want to be praying about his will in our life. We want to be praying for the people we love in our life. We want to be praying for the people that he's brought into our circle to pray for, to be aware of their needs. We want to be in tune. And we want to come from that solitary place and go to work and get on the freeway and go to these places and do these things, this hospital, this, that, whatever, people we see. And, you know, Trader Joe's, Target, whatever. We want to be dialed in and sensitive to what we're doing with time and suddenly the opportunities to fulfill his calling on our life in time. We want to recognize those moments. We want to appreciate him. We don't want to waste time. We don't want to panic over time. We just want to redeem the time and be very wise with it. And there are forces that we want to move us. There, there are lots of people that think they know how to manage your money, your time, your personality, and your life. Right? No. You belong to the Lord. 
Your life belongs to the Lord. Your resources belong to the Lord. Your time belongs to the Lord. And your calling belongs to the Lord. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we see Jesus here in tune. And right away, Peter's like, hey, let's do this. And Jesus is like, no, this is what we're doing because this is what we're called to do. That's the beauty of morning solitude and quality time with the Lord is you spend time in prayer. You tend to have a much clearer picture of what the purposes are that God has for your life. Quiet time with the Lord, clear purpose from the Lord, and then you can gauge all the noise by what you know is the Lord. It's critical. It's critical. It's hard to know the purpose if you're not praying and making time to be on the frequency that the Lord has for you. Finally, we pick it up in verse 40. Now, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he, that is Jesus, strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses in the Old Testament commanded as a testimony to the priest, to them. However, he, the leper, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly uh, enter the city, but was outside in the deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. So the healing of the leper changed the scope of the ministry for Jesus. It's linked. The leper didn't do what Jesus asked him to do or actually told him to do, and it changed the ministry of Jesus. But also it was a lost ministry for the leper, and this is the final thought for tonight. Jesus said, go present yourself to the priest for what? What did he say? As a testimony. And it's important that when Jesus has touched our life and cleansed our life and changed our life, that we are attuned to who we're sent to and to be faithful for the testimony that we have with what Christ has done in our life. You have a testimony. You have a story. Most people will listen to a story, someone's story. Most people will listen to someone's story. And if, you, if it's about your faith in Jesus and what he's done in your life, I mean, people are, most people are generally polite. On a plane, they'll listen to it. And at work, they'll listen to it under various circumstances. In the doctor's office, you get that chance. And you just tell your story. The faithfulness of the Lord in your life is your story that is his testimony. It's really got me thinking here, like, testimony. I think in 2019 and in this generation, I think maybe we've lost a little bit of that passion and fire for how powerful our testimony is. As Greg Glory used to teach everyone with the Harvest Crusades in pre-Crusade rallies, they'd go to churches, Ricky Ryan and Greg and these guys, and say, look, you have a testimony. Before Christ, my conversion, after Christ. Before Christ, came to Christ, after Christ. That's your testimony. And this backside is what glorifies the Lord, ideally. So I would encourage us to think about our testimony, and I encourage us to think like, is, is it is it a is it a strong testimony? Not that it's something radical or profound, but are you cleansed as a leper by the Savior? That's the power of the testimony, the transformed life. That's the key. So, testimony. Don't underestimate your testimony and let God add to it.